question. Have you ever had something told to you, someone tells you something, and it was true, but it didn't really help all that much, right? So, so they give you some, maybe it's advice, and that's probably a different you know, category, but they, t- they told you something. It can be absolutely true, and at the same time, it can be absolutely useless. Like the story I heard about two guys who were up in a hot air balloon, and they got lost, and they're floating around in the air, and, and so they saw a man below, and they yelled down at him. They said, hey, where are we? And he said, you're up in a hot air balloon. And they said, you must be an engineer. And he said, how did you know? And they said, because you, what you told us was absolutely true and absolutely useless. Sorry to all you engineers out there. It's just a joke. Don't take offense. Um, but my point is this. We are in the midst of a series talking about heaven and walking through. What does that look like? And we spent the last couple of weeks talking about how that impacts us now. We'll talk in, in, in the next couple of weeks about what heaven is going to be like, or some of the things that I think scripture points to about what heaven is going to be like. But one of the things that we're doing so far is spending some time talking about how heaven helps us now. And so there are some who think, yeah, that's fine. You know, if you want to talk about heaven, that's all good and well. But practically, what good does that do me now? Because we're not in heaven. We're on earth, right? So what good does it do to talk about heaven? I'll deal with that when we get there, hopefully, right? And, and maybe I'm being a little bit crass and, and a little bit short on that. But, but what good does heaven, what good does that do me now? I got to live on the earth right now. I don't know how many of you have heard the phrase. I've heard it more than a few times. But uh, the phrase goes something like this. Some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. Some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good good. And I've heard that phrase more than a few times. And the way I've heard it said, you'd almost think that phrase was in the Bible, or at least the ones using it thought that it was in the Bible. But I will tell you, it is not. The story is told of theologian and evangelist Dwight L. Moody. He was on his way to a speaking engagement, and a friend of his was going along with him, walking along with him to the event. And the friend asked him, hey, what are you going to preach on this evening? And Moody said, well, I'm going to talk about heaven. And the guy kind of got a frown on his face, and Moody said, what's the matter? And he said, well, I was hoping you were going to preach on something that would be practical. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Maybe you don't, but I think there are some that do. That heaven is nice, but it's kind of that pie in the sky, by and by, and it's there, and we're here. How does that help me here and now? But I would tell you, that the earliest Christians, they would never have viewed or understood heaven as just pie in the sky, by and by, we'll deal with it when we get there. In fact, they would question, I think they would legitimately question if your view of heaven was very biblical, if it wasn't exceedingly practical. Because that's what it's meant to be. Our view of then ought to affect our viewpoint now. You see, the New Testament's consistent witness is that what's coming in the future should affect what's happening in our present. Because we know what's coming, we can deal with things differently in the present. In other words, how we live with God then should impact how we are living for God now. In fact, I wonder if the first Christians would have wondered how anybody could be too heavenly minded. It's just not possible. And so let's go back to some scriptures that we looked at last week. Paul says in uh, Colossians chapter (coughs) 3, excuse me, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, 
not the things of earth. And so that's the command. We read that last week. That's the command that Paul gives to us for us to not think about the things of earth and be fixated on those things here, but to be heavenly minded in our view of things and of this world, to, to think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. But notice what Paul says right after that, just a couple of verses later. Verse five, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. In other words, you're thinking about heaven, but then there's something to do. Put to death the things that belong to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. So right after he says, think about the things of heaven, he says, and because of that, let's get practical. Put to death that which is earthly. Put to death that which is worldly. Skip down to verse 10. He continues, put on the new self, (coughs) excuse me, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Then down to verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed. Again, all of this section starts off by thinking heavenly minded. And then he gets down again, verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so when you think about heaven, it affects everything now, or at least it ought to. Everything you think, everything you say, everything you do is affected by your new reality. And it's interesting, when you look at the subject of heaven, and when heaven is talked about in the New Testament, what you find is that pretty much always it is followed by a section on behavior and ethics and how we live practically in this world. Because what you think about then has a huge impact on now. Or to put it another way, our future home is a present help. The reality of our future home is a present help in this reality. You see, the gospel, the gospel message that Jesus brings salvation doesn't just save us from death. That's one good thing. But the gospel also saves us for life. It doesn't just save us from something. (coughs) It saves us for something. That's why a biblical view of heaven has tremendously practical implications because, again, our outlook about then has outcomes now. Most of us have heard the phrase, heaven help us, right? You've maybe even used that phrase uh, before. Well, actually, it does, or it ought to. Now, we don't usually mean it that way when we're using that, but heaven help us, yes, it, it does. Heaven does help us. Let me show you three ways. First, heaven helps us, I think, to line up. Heaven helps us to line up. How many of you have had your car, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have had your car get out of alignment? I'm guessing because most of you, or if not all of you live in Michigan, you all have had your car get out of alignment because there's enough potholes to go around, right? But no matter where you live, at some point you drive enough miles on the roads of this country that we live in, and your car is going to start wobbling a little bit, you know, tires need to be rotated, and the alignment needs to be checked and probably put back into alignment. And listen, putting a lot of miles on this world's road can get us off track and out of alignment. And this is where heaven, this is one of the things heaven helps us with. When we're heavenly minded, it keeps us out of the ditch, keeps the guardrails up, right? Because it changes how we look at everything. Let me explain. Peter says this, (coughs) excuse me, in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 17. He says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as, and I want you to key on that word, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Throughout the New Testament, 
you and I as Christians, as followers of Jesus, are referred to in this way. as We are foreigners. We are exiles. We are aliens. We are strangers, if you will. And if you are a stranger, that means you're probably going to have some strange views when it comes to the people that you are around who are not strangers to this world. You're going to have some views that don't line up with the roads of this world. For example, if you're a stranger, you're going to have some strange views about money. Now, most people think that money is what life is all about. It gives you a sense of worth. It gives you a sense of status. But Jesus said that our priority should be not getting rich in this life, but getting rich in the next life. Store up for yourselves treasures not on earth, where moth and rust and all those things, they, they corrode. They, 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 in the end, they, you can't take them with, or, with you, right? But store up for yourselves treasures in, in heaven where those things don't have any place. Jesus said we should be able to distinguish between what's disposable and what's durable, between what's a trinket and what's treasure, between what's external and what's eternal. And if you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you've got some strange views about money. It's a tool. It is not the purpose and total of your life. You're also going to have some strange views about people. Now, the world loves to categorize people, right? And so we put people in this category, put them over here, put them in this category, and kind of, you know, pigeonhole people into whatever we might put them in, right? But if you are a citizen of heaven, as Paul says, you no longer look at anyone through a worldly point of view. You don't categorize people in those ways. Rather, you understand that people are the most important things you could possibly invest in because guess what? They're the only things that are going to last forever. God, Jesus, heaven, and people, right? And so consequently, your thoughts of heaven don't cause you to want to check out, but rather they cause you to want to engage. It just doesn't make sense that someone could be so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. In my experience, it's the people who live for the next world the most, who do the most good in this world. It's the people who are living for the home that's coming that make the biggest difference in the world that is right now. You see, if you really do keep your thoughts focused on heaven, it changes how you look at everything and everyone. It changes how you look at your identity. You don't find it in the applause of people, but you find it in the well done of God. It changes how you look at happiness. You don't settle for quick fixes. What's the best thing that's going to get me my happiness right now in the moment? But rather, you're looking for that eternal kind of joy that comes from the Spirit of God. It changes how you measure significance and value and worth. You don't find success in how much money you have or the title you have or the stuff you have, but rather in how much you give and how much you serve. And I think there's one more thing, especially I want to focus on for just a moment, that when you're heavenly minded, you're going to have some strange views about morality. Now, let me tell you, the church has an enemy. <clears throat> Jesus called him Satan. And his greatest threat, now a lot of times we think that his greatest threat is persecution. And I'm not saying he doesn't use that well. But I think throughout history, we find that the greatest threat to the church is not persecution, it is accommodation. In fact, throughout history, when Satan persecutes the church, the church gets fit and lean and strong. That's what you, happen, what, that's what you see happen. Look at it throughout the pages of Scripture. When the church gets persecuted, yeah, it's hard, but the church grows. It booms because it reorients. It, A, it weeds out who of us are serious about this and who are not. And then it also blows up because people see us and Christians living by a completely different ethic and viewpoint than the rest of the world, right? 
And so I, I don't think Satan's greatest tool is persecution. I think it is accommodation to get the church to so water down our doctrine and our morals that we look no different than the world around us. And consequently, we have no countercultural witness to the world around us. It takes great intentionality to make sure that your values stay lined up with the kingdom of heaven. So go back to Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, be heavenly minded. And because you're heavenly minded, get rid of sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. Then, starting verse 6, he says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also get rid of yourself, get rid your, you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, <coughs> rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices. And then as we read earlier from verse 10, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. We live by, a, by a, the ethic of the kingdom of heaven. Because that's where our true citizenship is. But here's the reality. We also live here, right? And so that makes it difficult. Our reality, our, our, our future reality is a reality. And it affects how we live here. But the reality is we still have to live here. And that is a constant struggle. It is exhausting to keep our values and our morals and our ethic lined up with heaven when they seem so different from the values around us. But again, that's where heaven can help us. Helps give us moral stamina. Being heavenly minded helps us see accommodation for what it truly is, a completely losing strategy. Let me illustrate it this way. It would be cool to play professional basketball, right? For some of you, definitely. But to get paid to play a game would be fun, right? And so there is a team that is professionals. This is the case for a team... I don't have their picture up here, but many of you have heard of the Washington Generals. If you have not heard the Washington Generals, I'll explain who the Washington Generals are. They are the team that goes around the world playing a team that you definitely have heard of, the Harlem Globetrotters. So they go around playing the Harlem Globetrotters. You know they have played the Harlem Globetrotters over 17,000 times. You want to take a guess as to how many games they've won? More than zero. Three. The last time was in 1971. So over 17,000 losses and three wins. I bring that up to say what kind of fool would take all of his worth and money and bet it on the Washington Generals to win? But let me tell you this. You are an even bigger fool to put all of your value and your worth into this world, and to the values it holds, and to the worth that it, it tells you it will bring. If you wouldn't bet your money on the Washington generals, then why are we betting on an even more losing strategy than the strategies of this world? We will never find our ultimate satisfaction in this world. We will find it in the kingdom of God. Seek first his kingdom, Jesus says. And heaven helps us do that. Heaven helps us line up our values. We don't want to miss home for anything in this world. And heaven helps us do that. But not only does heaven help us line up, I think heaven also helps us lighten up, right? Like when the preacher knocks his head on the microphone, right? We can lighten up a little bit. But seriously, people who walk in the light ought to be able to lighten up a little bit, right? 
Shouldn't we be able to lighten up, at least more than, more than those around us? But heaven helps us recognize the trivial stuff in life for what it really is. And heaven helps us also realize that so much of the stuff really is trivial in this life. Not only do I recognize the trivial stuff for what it is, but I also recognize there's a lot more trivial stuff than what I oftentimes make out to be. Now, I'm reminded of this every week, although, to be honest with you, I don't really take those reminders all that well because I'm usually not in that frame of mind. But I was especially reminded of this this week, particularly with the subject matter that we are talking about. And I won't get into all of the, the different things that happened. And it wasn't like a crazy week, but there were, like, I was just more aware of it this week, I think, because of what I'm preaching about. And I'll just say that it tested what I'm preaching on this morning. Am I going to practice it or am I just going to preach it, particularly this point? And listen, there were several things that only living by my flesh I would have gotten upset about. But I'm going to tell you, I didn't. Now, I don't know what next week holds, and I may get upset about the same things, but this week I did a really good job. But I'll tell you, the main reason I did a really good job is because I had just written a question in my sermon that I'm going to preach to you, and I'm going to tell you in just a moment, that I said, if I'm going to preach it, then I need to live by it at least a little bit, right? And here's the question. How many of the things that have been upsetting you lately could pass the eternity test? How many of the things that have been upsetting you this past week could pass the eternity test? Is it going to matter in eternity if, fill in the blank. Now, I'm not saying that wipes everything out, but it does kind of put things into perspective. At least it does for me. How many of the things that have been upsetting you lately are going to matter in 10 years? How many of the things that have been upsetting you lately are going to matter in 10 hours? How many of the things that upset you this past week mattered in 10 minutes? I think those are good questions to think about. You know, theologians theologians call the view of end times a word called eschatology, which if you want to sound really smart, you can just start throwing those. Yeah, reading about some eschatology lately. So it's just a fancy word for end times, right? So the eschatological viewpoint is is looking at the future, looking at at now through the lens of of what is coming. So I heard a a story, funny story about a college professor who teaches Bible and eschatology, and he knows the students have an eschatological viewpoint when uh, they have a particular argument about grades. And so, uh, for instance, a student will, he told it this way, a student will come in and he'll say, hey, you gave me a C on my final, but I need a B to pass the test or pass the course. And the teacher says, but you did C work. And the student says, but I need a B to pass the course. But you did C work. And the, and the conversation will go on like that for a little while. And, and finally, the professor will say, why are we arguing about this? In 100 years, what's it going to matter if you got a B or you got a C? And he will know the student has learned the eschatological viewpoint when the student replies, you're right. What's it going to matter in 100 years? So give me the B right? And that's what happens when you look at now through the lens of then. Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, for our light and momentary troubles. Now, I want to stop right there because my guess is that when you're going through troubles, they don't seem light and momentary, right? That's that's the reality, and I get that, and I don't want to discount that, but they are compared to eternity. They are compared to eternity. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory 
that far outweighs them all. So, because of that, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, because that, that's, that's temporary, right? What is unseen is eternal. Or as one hymn writer put it, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful grace and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Heaven helps us line up. Heaven helps us lighten up. And maybe most of all, heaven helps us hang on. It helps us hang on. You see, believing that the next life will be good does not mean pretending that this life is not hard. And I hope you hear me say that. I hope you hear what I'm saying in these moments. Life is hard sometimes. In fact, life is hard a lot of times. And right now, some of you are going through some really, really difficult things. And you are in a really, really difficult place. And being a faithful Christian does not mean putting a, some silly smile on your face and pretending it's not hard when it's hard. That's not what it means to be a faithful Christian. Being a faithful Christian does not mean pretending that things right now don't really hurt. The promise of heaven does not erase the pain in this life. In fact, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But what heaven does is it gives us a certain leverage over the pain of this world so that we can hang in and hang on. I think we ought to be suspicious of any glib version of Christianity that just says, Jesus is the answer. Just, just say, I love Jesus, and all the pain goes away, and everything's easy from that. Man, just say, I love Jesus, and it's just all easy from there. Seriously, has that been your experience? Just say Jesus, and it all goes away? I mean, how is Jesus the answer for the permanently poor? How is Jesus the answer for the perpetually oppressed? How is Jesus the answer for the person who's terminally ill and, and suffering? How is it Jesus the answer for the child with a special need or the, the parent who's raising that child? Precious but challenging situation of raising a child with special needs. How is Jesus the answer for a person dealing with a parent or spouse who's got a debilitating disease? How is Jesus the answer? Because those things are real and those things are in, they're enduring, at least for a season. And I would argue Jesus is the answer. I believe he is, but not because we just say the words but because his death and his resurrection means that those trials and those struggles will come to an end one day. And his glory and what he has prepared, prepared for us, the triumph that we will experience will last forever. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And listen, it is not easy. It's long obedience in the same direction. And many of us walk home with a limp. But heaven helps us hang on and refuse to quit. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul said toward the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Here's the good news. We all get the prize. 
You don't have to compare your race to anyone else's, but if you run the race following after Jesus, it doesn't matter if you finish first or last. If you're in the race following after Jesus, giving your life to him, you get the prize. So don't compare your race to anybody else's. Run your best. You chase after Jesus as hard as you can, and you don't quit. Because I said earlier, our future home is a present help, and our present race is a future win. If you surrender your life to Jesus and you follow him, in the end, you are going to win. You are going to receive your prize. You are going to get a crown. And thinking of then does me a lot of good right now. Yeah, I'd say heaven helps. Heaven helps a lot. And so my word to us as we close Stay aligned, keep calm, and most of all, don't quit. Because one day, church, we will be home.